22nd chapter, the Gospel of Luke, verses 31 through 38. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it. And likewise, a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Grass withers, flower fades. Word of our God stands forever. We have a couple more events here in the 22nd chapter of Luke before we get into the actual betrayal and arrest of Jesus. And this is where we'll be for the last couple of weeks here in June. This week we're going to be looking at this prediction of Peter's betrayal. That Christ is going to make a deny, or Christ is making a prediction that Peter is going to have a denial. He's going to deny Christ. And then also there's this passage of just a change in standard operating procedures for Christ followers. It's quite a shocking passage. A big change is coming up with huge implications. And, we're, and that's what we're going to dig into this morning. If you want to just take a second, let's pray again for God's help as we look at this passage. God, give us eyes to see you clearly as we look at your word in this morning. Father, my prayer is that as this is your living word, you would give us your Holy Spirit to hear what it is speaking to us this morning, God. Help us to rightly divide your word of truth that we might know you better, we might understand ourselves more fully, and that our joy in you would be increased. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as this night progresses on here in the, the evening, Jesus turns his attention to one of his main disciples, Peter. He says here, Simon, Simon, but that's, that's Peter's, uh, was his name before he met Jesus. We, both Mark and Luke, we've read through, record that Jesus changes Simon's name to Peter. He was known as Simon, but now he's called Peter. But, but here he goes back to referring to him by the name that he had before Jesus changed it. He calls him Simon. Now, that might have something to do with the fact that Peter is getting ready to go back kind of to his old ways. He's going to, he's making, Jesus is making this prediction. You're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And so he, he associates that with, with Peter's old man, his, his, the man that he was before he met Christ. So maybe he calls him Simon, Simon for that reason. But honestly, it's just, it's just kind of conjecture at that point. It's interesting, but I hesitate to make too much out of that passing detail. The shocking part of this narrative is the reality, the prediction that Peter is going to deny Jesus three times. But the circumstances behind that prediction, 
are even, if not, not more, but they are as startling what leads up to this denial of Jesus that's going to happen three times. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, and then he gives us this incredible supernatural uh, spiritual insight. Satan has made demands to have Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Satan wants to control Peter. He wants to put Peter through the, the, through the mill. He wants to really harass Peter. And ultimately, he wants to destroy Peter. And so he is asked, to have Peter, to have Simon, he wants to destroy him. Which just brings us to the first kind of surface level observation we have to make out of this text. Satan is real. He hates God. He hates God's people. He wants to destroy them. If you are a believer in Christ, in fact, I could make the argument probably that as an image bearer, we all created Imago Dei. We are, God breathes into us as special creation, humanity as the, the pinnacle of his creation. We are made in the image of God. And as image bearers, I would argue that, pro, that Satan does not like any image bearer of God and wants to destroy all of humanity. But specifically, Christians are especially hated by Satan. Christ, if you are a believer in Christ, you have a supernatural being greater than you who is after your own destruction, who wants to ruin you. One of the great victories, C.S. Lewis brings this out in his book, The Screwtape Letters, but one of, the, one of the great victories of Satan over us is convincing us that he doesn't really even exist. That's one of his slyest, smartest victories over us is to get us to be thinking and to, to consider our lives as only material, that there's nothing spiritual or supernatural going on. And if he can convince you he doesn't exist, you don't have an enemy, you don't have someone who wants bad for you, then he's won the battle because he can manipulate and maneuver and orchestrate things that you won't even consider that he has a hand in. Now, there is an error that some people get into of, of fanaticism, of seeing Satan and demons behind every rock and everything that goes wrong. They, they attribute everything bad and they think that they're just constantly looking around and, and accusing Satan of being everywhere. That is a ditch to get into of a constant state of fear and trepidation and worry over this enemy that we have. But the other ditch is not the answer to say to act like he doesn't exist and to not, to not confess the reality that Jesus puts out for us that there is a supernatural being who wants, who hates you and who wants your life ruined, who wants you to curse God and die, who wants your ultimate destruction with him in the fires of hell forever. He wants that for you. And to pretend like that doesn't exist is to, is to let him win, essentially, because you're, you're missing the, the, the point, the, the idea, the reality that there is this enemy. So we don't want to go into either ditch. This event reminds you, hopefully, of the account of Job. You can get your Bibles out there and look with me. Maybe you know the story of Job, but Job loses just everything, right? This is page 491 in your pew Bible. Job has incredible tragedies that come upon his life. 
just, he's, he's ruined. He loses everything. But Job really, we get an in behind the scenes, an insider's look that Job doesn't get into why he's suffering. So we look at Job chapter 1, verse 6. The beginning part tells us about Job and his riches. But starting in verse 6, now, Job 1, 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. We get this behind the curtain view of what's going on in the supernatural places. And if you read on in the book of Job, you do find out just in this next chapter, and then more happens in chapter two where Satan attacks his actual health. But that all of these things are this insider look of Job has an enemy. And there's a lot going on that we don't see that is seeking your destruction. So Satan comes along and he loses. You can read verses 13 through 19, loses all of these things, his, his children, his possessions, his house, his servants, all of these things are destroyed. Verse 20, then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. This incredible view we have of these, this, this supernatural reality that is after the people of God to ruin them and wants to destroy them. So observation number one we have to make from this text, Satan is real. He hates you. You better be aware of the battles that you have in front of you. They are not... Um, they're not battles over nothing. They're not, they're not insignificant battles. The fights that are in front of you, there is a force that wants to pull you into the darkness and away from God. And if you aren't aware of that, then you don't know where the battle lines are drawn, essentially. So it is important that you realize and are aware of these battles that are in front of you and that you engage in the good fight of faith. That's observation number one. But I got, so I, I want you to know that. But back in, the, in Luke chapter 22, there was something else that just that struck me this week as I was thinking on this text and thinking about this passage. All through the gospel of Luke, there's been certain recurring themes that we've seen uh, of, of messages in, about Jesus. Uh, and one of those themes is Jesus' sovereignty over all, over all things. He heals the sick. When a demon-possessed person comes up, Jesus commands a demon-possessed person to go away. When the storms go wild and the boats are, go to sink, Jesus says, be still, and the storms stop. 
Jesus has command over all. He has this, he has all this knowledge. He's, he sees, he knows men's heart. He's setting up, go into such and such place and you'll see a man leading someone by, uh, carrying a pot of water. Go to that house. That's where the upper room is going to be had. And he, he has all of this knowledge and all this sovereignty, all this power. Uh, he, that's one of the clear messages from the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is God in human flesh. He does what he wants to do. Even down to this event that we're getting up to of his crucifixion, he makes the clear point he is not going to die apart from when he plans to die. No one is in charge of Jesus' death but himself. He says, you go and tell that fox, Herod, I go to this place and I go to that place. And on this day, he's, he has his plans. He is sovereign over all of these things. So we get to this account, and, and this is the question that comes to my mind. When, when Satan demands to have Peter and to sift him like wheat, why doesn't Jesus say no? I mean, I can imagine the conversation like this between Peter and Jesus. Jesus says, hey, Peter, Satan has asked to have you and to sift you like wheat. There's a pause. Peter says, well, you told him to go away, right? <laughs> isn't that what Peter, isn't that what you said? You, uh, didn't you tell him to bug off? So Satan asked to have me. I can only assume that as you are the God who controls all things and does whatever you please, you told him to leave me alone, didn't you? You told him to get lost, right? I've seen everything you do. Tell Satan to leave me alone. But that is not what Jesus does. That is not what Jesus does. He prays. He says, I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail and that when you have turned back, strengthen the brothers. Permission is essentially granted to Simon or to Satan for Simon for Peter's sifting. Why does he allow this? I mean, I, I hope you, I don't, know if you, I don't know if your silence is because you thought, oh, I'm not sure I want to handle this question or if you don't get what I'm saying. But you, I hope you can understand the, the tension that is now here. Why is this happening? Why does Jesus allow this? And from this text, it seems to be for a combination of things. From this experience, as he says, um, when you have turned, he says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. From this experience of this sifting, it appears that this experience and the conquering of it, which he's, Jesus is saying, he's going to conquer this sifting, Peter is going to be empowered to help his brothers on the other side of his trial. He is going to have experience that he can then help his brothers with. He's going to know uh, very, very intimately Failure, disappointment, sin, his own failures, his own humiliation. He's going to know these things so that when he comes back around, he can help the brothers who struggle with the same things, these kind of trials. And it also does appear that Peter maybe needs some humbling. He says, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Peter is very self-confident at this point. He's very self-confident at this point. He doesn't know yet how weak and dependent he truly is. So these, these next verses after this event, they're all talking about 
this change in operating procedure. When he's saying, go and sell these things before, how, how did it work before? They went out and ministered and it was success and they were provided for and things went well. And they came back saying, even the demons are subject to our name and all these amazing things are happening. And, and they were, they're just, there's such success as they go out. And Jesus is saying, the tides are now turning. You're going to go out and, and it isn't going to be all success. It isn't going to be all things going rosily. It isn't going to be all this warm reception. There's going to be difficulty. I'm, I'm now becoming a transgressor. I'm, the servant is not greater than the master. And the time is coming where those who follow me will do so by taking up their crosses and following me. Don't get confused by the pick up the sword part. Uh, that is not this um, a call to arms for Christians to now uh, everyone's supposed to start carrying your pistol into church now because Jesus has said take up your sword. No, that's, it's a change in the way the operating procedure is going to be. And it's, that's clear because we see later in the garden that they get those swords out to cut off, to, to have an armed resistance, and Jesus tells them to stop. That this is not an armed resistance. That's not the point. There's a frustration in Jesus' voice when they bring out and they say, here are two swords. And he says, it's enough. He said, you've missed the point, is what he's saying. That's enough. No, stop. That's not. The, the point is that it's, things are changing. The culture, the temperature is changing for the disciples of Christ. Times of trials are coming. That's what he's communicating to them. Times, take, you better take your knapsack. You better take a cloak. You better take some way of self-defense. You better take, because times are changing. Trials are on the way for all those who are Christ's disciple. The question is not, will trouble come? The question is not, will you fail at times? You will. Instead, the question becomes that when trouble comes or when you fail, will you turn back to Jesus when they do occur? Will the trial produce a greater cleaving and clinging to Christ? Or will the trial produce an abandonment or greater distance from Christ? Trials are coming, but pay attention this morning to the specific kind of trial Peter's going through. There are various kinds of trials that you will have to endure in this life. Many of them are trials through circumstances beyond your control. Persecution on account of the word. We look at the unreached people groups and there are churches meaning across the globe who are undergoing great persecution uh, for their faith and, and nations that are not friendly to Christianity. Persecution does come. Those are circumstances. Those are trials outside of their control. Persecution may come. Poverty may come to you. And it's a trial that you have to go through. How do I trust God in the midst of these difficult circumstances? Illness is a trial that can come your way. Losing loved ones is a trial that can come your way. And what do you do in the midst of these trials? All of these kind of trials, we all know them and are familiar with them. But this morning, this trial of Peter's is a different trial. His difficulty is a trial from what he has produced from within himself. His trial is from an event of his own sinful creation. Sometimes those are the most difficult trials to make it through. Where it isn't anybody else's fault. It's just yours. You ever, maybe all you, you ever feel that way? that the things that are going on in my life, I can't really point fingers at everybody. I can work hard to try to point the fingers, but at the end of the day, this trial, 
is no one's fault but, but me. I have transgressed. I have sinned. I am the one that has messed up. Jesus isn't going to keep him from this trial, even when this trial is a result of Peter's own sin. You can survive people hating you. You can overcome and de deepen your faith through times of major health crises. Sometimes those are the times when your faith feels the strongest because you've got this opposition coming outside of you and it strengthens your faith. God's grace pulls you up into him in those moments through major health issues and major loss and crises like that. But at times when it comes to the battle with your own indwelling sin, those trials seem to be the most crushing. When it's you, you're the one that has caused the trial. When the only person at fault is yourself. You were the one who had the outburst of anger. You were the one who pursued the adulterous affair. You were the one who medicated your sorrow with substances. You were the one who embraced laziness and apathy instead of pursuing the tasks that God had given to you. You were the one who gave in to desires that you knew were contrary to God's will for you. You gave in to bitterness. You gave in to gossip and betrayed someone that you loved. You have created, you and your sinfulness have done this thing. You are the one that has turned from God and has produced this now trial that lays in front of you, the trial of your own sinfulness. What do you do when the trial is one that is manifesting only because of your own sin? You understand the trial that I'm talking about? What do you do in this moment? Wouldn't it be nicer if Jesus just magically kept you from all of these trials? Wouldn't that be nice if he just said, you know what, Peter, Satan's asked to have you, but I don't want you to go through it, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep it from you. But he doesn't. We have to ask, Why? Why does he allow this sort of trial in the Christian's life? Well, I started asking that question and I sat down and I started, well, I think, I think this. Oh, okay, and I had a nice outline of six, it was six points under two nice headings. And then I realized, you don't care what I think it happens. Let's look at what the Bible says, why it happens. So get your Bibles back out. I want you to see this. Don't take Darren's word for it. I want you to see what Scripture tells us, the reason for these trials are happening. We're going to look at the book of James, chapter 1. This is on page 1199 of your Pew Bible. This is James, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Let's see what God's, why? Why does God allow these sorts of trials to come in your life? Well, James, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 says this. James, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James is so confused here that he tells him to have joy when trials come along. Joy when trials, when we encounter various trials, not just certain trials, but various trials, certainly including all the ones of trials that come from outside of you and also the trials that come from within you. We are to count it joy. Why? Because of the testing of our faith that trials produce when we are steadfast through the trial. Our faith is strengthened when we come through those trials. Now, your first reaction might be, Darren, my faith is not strengthened 
when I sin, <laughs> when, I, when I've created this own trial, when I've done my own sinful rebellion, my faith is not strengthened. If anything, I distrust myself more. If anything, I have less faith in myself. And I answer to that, exactly. Yes. When, when you are the one creating the trial, when you are the one in your rebellion creating this problem in front of you, this trial that's in front of you, it causes you to realize you are not trustworthy. It causes you to realize you are not big enough to support even your own life. You need something bigger than yourself to help you. You need to look not deeper within yourself to get through the trials. You need to look outside of yourself to someone who can actually help you. Someone who can actually support you. Your failure has brought to light your deep dependency upon God, upon Christ. And, your, and it has brought, shed light upon your deep lack of personal sufficiency. That is counting it joy that as you encounter these trials, God in the midst of those things is, is allowing those trials to happen so that you will have a clear view of yourself that you would turn and despair of your self-sufficiency and self-reliance and look to the one who is truly reliable outside of yourself, that you would look to Christ. Now, this is our big idea for this morning. Sorry, I'm just now getting to it, but God is always working for your greatest good. The big idea, God is always working for your greatest good to draw you closer to himself. God is always working for your greatest good. And that greatest good is to draw you closer to himself. We think the greatest good is give me an easy breezy I almost that's a cover girl. <laughs> an easy breezy beautiful cover girl. No. <laughs> Give me an easy, you know, just easy life. That's God's working for my greatest good is keep me from every trial. Keep me from every problem. Keep me from everything going wrong. And leave me far from you is where that ends up. God is always working for your greatest good, which is to draw you closer to himself. Now, at this point, I've got to be careful because in no way does this make sin a good thing. God, in his sovereignty over the sinfulness of man, is able to take our rebellion and even turn your sin for your own good by drawing you closer to him through it. But that doesn't by any means say, all right, perfect. I want to get closer to God. Let's all march out and go sin as much as we can so that we'll be drawn closer to God. No, no, that is, that is, a, that is a total misunderstanding of what God is doing. The end result is that we will have much to be thankful for. We are to see that sin for what it is, not charging gladly into it, but grieved by it, thereby causing us to draw closer to God. Repentant, yes, but self-hating, shame, marinating it, no. Christian, God is working on you. No offense, you have not arrived yet. God is working on you. And his main goal for you, his ultimate good for you, is drawing you closer to him. Not closer in reliance upon yourself, but closer to him. He is not keeping you 
from, in that he is not keeping you from everything. He is working on your behalf that ultimately nothing will keep you from coming closer to him. That is his aim. Nearer to Christ and nearer to Christ's likeness. Our responsibility is to fight sin, is to fight Satan, is to engage in this battle, is to fight the good fight of faith, is to seek to put to death all that would keep us from Christ. And when it doesn't, and when we fail, and when we fall, when trials come from outside of us, and when trials rear their ugly heads from within, within us, what do we do in that moment? We turn to the one who has been confessing our sins, return to the Christ who has promised to rescue us, and, and anchor ourselves in who he is and what he has done in true humility and thankfulness. Go back Two or three more pages in your pew Bible to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Now, these are words from the guy who has failed the three times. He's got some skin in the game on what it means to, to go through trials. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who you are, the who? Who's the you? Who you are. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, this inheritance, this coming promise that you're being guarded in, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Same language of James there, various trials. So, so that, verse 7 you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by the fire, so that this faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not the revelation of your own self-significance, but the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter, the man who lived through his trial, through this betrayal, knows something about finding joy not in yourself, but in what Christ has secured for you. Not looking into me for my joy, my hope, my peace, my security, my happiness. Looking outside to Christ, the one who has secured everything for you. Trials of personal failure, of personal sin, lead the Christian into further and deeper treasuring of Christ. Now that they no longer glory, they, they no longer glory in their sin, it's not that they glory in their sin or make sin some sort of good in their life. It brings me closer to God. No, but they're able to see the grace of God that keeps them through it all. And even in the midst of their rebellion, even in the midst of their rebellion, works to draw them closer to the only true treasure of the universe, God himself. John is the only one who records the restoration of Peter. We're going to get there later in the text, but John is the only gospel writer who records the restoration. You know, after Jesus is resurrected and he meets him on the, the beach and they have fish for breakfast and he restores uh, Peter to himself and he asks him these questions three times, right? Do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Asking this question 
I think the one who knows the hearts of all men, I think he knows if Peter loves him or not. He's just like trying to answer, I'm not sure, Peter, do you, do you love me? He's not trying to figure something out. I think he's asking Peter if he truly loves Jesus because now Peter has a deeper understanding of the reality that he truly does. Peter's not done sinning by any means. We have further record of his failures. But Peter continues to cling to Christ because Christ is continuing to cling to him. He's prayed for him and his, his prayers, Christ's prayers do not fail. So the application comes to us with this inquiry, I guess. Are, are we clinging to Christ? There is one who has the strength to save you and it isn't you. There is one who has the strength to save you and it isn't you. There is one who has the power to aid you to flee from sin and it isn't you. There is one who has the power to save you and secure you to, to himself and it isn't you. It is Christ. He is the treasure. He is the one who secures the treasure of himself for all who are repenting and trusting in him. He alone secured it by his work on the cross and his resurrection three days later. As we come to the communion this morning, we do so as those who are abandoning self-trust and self-clinging and clinging instead and trusting in Christ alone for life, for breath, for strength, and for everything. Let's pray. Father, Help us in this place this morning. I know the various trials in my own life, my own self, are, are too numerous to count. So I look across this congregation and know that the trials that are going on in all of our lives are, are numerous. Father, I pray that this morning as we come to communion, we do so as those realizing that the strength, the security, the peace that we need is not from within us. It's from outside of us. We need an alien righteousness, something foreign to us. We need a strength that is not known in us, but a strength that comes only from you. So as we come to communion, we, we do so, Father, this morning as a recognition, coming to receive something outside of us, the broken body, the shed blood of Jesus Christ, that we would be forgiven, that we would be helped, that we would be secured to you, that we would be given the greatest good, which is you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.